ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. That is the glorious, joyous task that is ours this week in this moment as we submit ourselves to the word of the Lord and see how he will change us through his spirit. So welcome to that great and glorious endeavor. I've led many pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Perhaps some of you have joined me on one of those journeys. And uh, flying in and out of Tel Aviv, out of Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, is always a great challenge because their security protocols are legendary. And you can spend many hours in that airport before you finally make it through security. But no time was it ever the case like one year, which was particularly bad, all because of a stupid gift that was given to me by our tour guide. It was a wooden gift box, lovely really, full of bottles of various mementos from the Holy Land. So we had limestone fragments from Jerusalem and salt from the Dead Sea and olive oil and frankincense. And it was all lovely, although I was thinking, where in the world am I going to put this when I get home? Uh, apparently, though, these, these bottles made our security people nervous because one of them pointed to me and said, would you please step out of the line? You really never want to hear that in Israel, ever. And so I did as I was bidden, and he proceeded to open up that box and to test all of the contents of all 16 of those bottles. And to make it worse, all 48 of us had been given one of those boxes. And so all 48 of us were pulled out of the line, off to the side, separated from the rest of the now gawking tourists who were pointing at us, and we were subjected to a very thorough inspection. Not as thorough as it could have been, but thorough enough. And we felt very, very, very conspicuous there together. Last week, Pastor Ellis taught us how we, as believers in an unbelieving world, have been set apart from that world. The word is holy, set apart from the rest of the world, not because we are particularly good or particularly deserving, but because of a gift that we have received, the gift of salvation, the gift of redemption through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And, and just like those tourists who were pointing and gawking at us in the airport, the, the world is, is going to notice that there's something different about us. It's just not possible that it would be otherwise. And it ought to be the case, as a matter of fact. This morning, Peter turns to a, the single most important thing that ought to set us apart. So if you're going to learn one thing, this would be that one thing. And interestingly, it's not how we behave out in the world that ought to most set us apart. It is how we behave within the church. The greatest proof to unbelievers of who Jesus is and what he has done is the way that we followers treat each other. And Peter knew this because he was sitting in the upper room when Jesus told him so. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you, yes, you know it, that you what? Well, 
let's listen as Peter recalls Jesus' mandate and does so in his own words. We continue with our journey through this precious letter from Peter. First Peter, it's near the end of your New Testament, after Hebrews, before Revelation and all of the John. So turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we are picking it up very near the very end. As you can see, we are kind of snail pacing our way through uh, the letter, but it's just too rich to not do otherwise. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, only that one. Here it is in the NIV, in the NIV. Peter says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. I love Eugene Peterson's take on so many of the verses in Scripture, and here's how the message puts it. He says, now that you've cleaned up your lives by following the truth, love one another as if your lives depended upon it. So as spiritual exiles, as believers in an unbelieving world, what is the single most important thing that we can do to bear witness to Jesus? Or to take up the illustration that Pastor Ellis used last week, if we were on trial for being a Christian, what is the single most compelling piece of evidence that could convict us? And Jesus said, it's the way we love one another. The way we love one another. The unbelieving world will know that we are followers of Jesus because we love one another well. And this came right from the lips of Jesus in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You might have seen a commercial for a hotel website featuring Captain Obvious. And honestly, I feel a little bit like Captain Obvious as we are making our way through this book because we are talking about such basic Christian ideas, such basic Christian doctrine. I spent a good time talking about salvation. We have talked about the doctrine of sanctification, of being made holy by the Holy Spirit. Later on in this text, we're going to talk about another one, regeneration. All of these are basic, normal, adult Sunday school kind of Christian stuff. Obvious. But here we come to the most obvious of all, perhaps. We're talking about love. And we would say, Duh, of course we're supposed to love one another. Everyone knows that. Let's move on to something more interesting. But do we do it? Do we do it? Do we love one another, really? I want you to look around right now in a moment, and I'm really going to let you do it. I want you to catch the eye of five other people that you did not come here with, I want you to wave at them so that you know that they're looking at you. Go ahead and do that. I'm going to just wait. Go ahead. Look around. Catch the glimpse of five other people at least. Here's the amazing truth. These are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. These are blood relatives. Not the way that we normally think about it, but rather through the blood of Jesus and Jesus, whose shed blood binds us together, said, your number one assignment is to love each other. 
There was only one time that Jesus ever said, I'm giving you a new commandment. It's actually pretty audacious. It gives you an idea of who he thought himself to be when he said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. For more than a thousand years, ten had been fine. Ten commandments did the trick for more than a thousand years. Then along comes Jesus and he said, no, we got an eleventh that I'm going to add. And here it is. I want you all to love each other. That's what Peter reminds us here in this passage of what he had heard from the lips of Jesus in the upper room. I hope you'll notice as we make our way through Peter's letter how often you hear the echoes of the gospel stories. Again and again we say, oh yes, I remember when Peter heard that in the gospels. And now he is echoing back what he heard in the upper room. And when you really dig into the Greek in this little verse, it actually comes to life. And I know this is kind of nerdy, but this is the sort of stuff that Julie and I just live for. And so I want to dig into it a little bit more. The first phrase, the first part of that phrase, Peter says, you know you're supposed to have sincere love for each other. That's the word that was used, sincere love. Literally, it is sincere brotherly love. If you look at the Greek word, sincere brotherly love. Now, you Sunday school scholars, can you guess the Greek word for sincere brotherly love. I'll give you a hint. There's a city named after it. Philadelphia. That is the word in this Greek. You didn't know you were Greek scholars, but there it is. Philadelphia. Now, some of you might have expected a different word because often when we talk about love in the Bible, we talk about agape, right? Agape love. Agape is the highest form of biblical love. It is God's love. Agape is the kind of love that does not depend upon a response. Agape is choice love. It is a a love that you choose to offer. It is the love that says, I don't care how you respond. I don't care how you treat me. I, I don't care even if you are unfaithful to me. I will love you anyhow. Agape is a high and hard love. Agape is less about emotion and more about decision. Agape is the love of a parent for a rebellious child. Agape is the faithful love toward an unfaithful spouse. That's agape. When John 3.16 declares, for God so loved the world, and when he says world, he means the unfaithful, rebellious, hateful world. When God so loved the world, he sent his only son. That love is agape love. It is the highest Christian love because it is the hardest love. It is the most sacrificial love. It is the most selfless love. It is the costliest love. But it is not the sweetest love. The sweetest love is Philadelphia. The sweetest love is brotherly love, sisterly love, because Philadelphia runs both ways. Philadelphia is reciprocated. You give love and joyously you receive love back. It is mutual. I think back over this last week of the the joy of interacting with my beloved teammates. I think of our journey to Portland for Presbytery and the trip that we took down together and the time that we were there and the fellowship of these brothers and sisters from around the region who are dear to each other. That's Philadelphia. It's sweeter. It's delightful. 
And if an unbeliever were to peek into the room at that time, they would see that sweet, the delight and the sweetness and they would be drawn to it. And these exiles, these people who find themselves outside of society because God has set them apart to live in a different way, to whom Peter is writing, he's saying, the world may not be nice to you, the world may not love you, but that is okay, because you have each other. There's solace in the fact you have each other. In the church, you will find a gift of reciprocal, sweet, mutual Brotherly, sisterly love. That's what he says in the first half of the verse. And then comes a surprise. He goes on. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love. That's Philadelphia right there. For each other. He goes on. Love one another deeply from the heart. You see that second love? Guess which one that is? That's agape. In other words, Peter seems to be saying, if you want to experience Philadelphia, sweet, mutual, second nature, reciprocal, brotherly and sisterly love that occurs as Christian family, then you got to go through agape. You, you get to sweet, reciprocal love by going through obedient love. Choice love, decision love. And he is saying, you better get started. One com commentator puts it this way. He says, if the ideal is that Christians should love their brothers, then get on and do it. This is a clear and direct command. We must take action without ifs and buts, end quote. In other words, we learn to love by practicing to love. We learn to love by loving. And that's fine, of course, if we like the people we're supposed to love. If we enjoy them and respect them, it's easier to love them. But what if we don't? What if they irritate us or offend us? Or worse, what if they mistreat us? or abuse us, or betray us. Are we supposed to love those so-called Christians too? And the hard answer is yes. We must agape them, even if we can't bring ourselves to Philadelphia them. Which means that this love is not based upon our emotions or our feelings. This is the love of action. This is the choice we make to treat unlovely brothers and sisters in a loving way, to behave righteously toward them, whether they deserve it or not. Or to put it a different way, to not treat them as they might deserve to be treated. And I think that's what Peter goes on to give us an example of in chapter 2. He takes us into chapter 2, verse 1, and he says these words. He gives us an example of what love does not look like in the Christian family. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That phrase, put away, it means strip it off. Strip it off. It is the word that you would use to describe stripping off your filthy, smelly work clothes or workout clothes. Or to put it in grandparent talk, a filthy diaper. 
Strip it off. Peter says one step toward loving each other is to strip off your filthy behaviors toward each other. And I wonder, as I read through those, if any of those nouns hit home. If when you heard one of them, you said, ah, that one, that one hit a little close to home. That, I feel guilty as charged on, on that one. Which of these behaviors do you need to strip off as if we're, we're a, a filthy, manky old t-shirt? Malice, he says. Malice just means wickedness, which in itself is quite a word. It means evil stuff, all evil things. And I think it's actually the heading for the rest of the words that follow. And then he goes on, deceit. Deceit means lies. It means bending the truth. This is the trickery of someone who seeks to deceive others for his or her gain. It is the sin of impure motives. I have a friend who calls this getting brothered. Getting brothered. And what he means by that is when someone approaches you with a big smile and they say that they're a Christian, they say brother, as they are slipping their hands into your pocket. That's getting brothered. That's deceit. He goes on, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means mask wearing. It was drawn from the theater. When actors wore masks as they portrayed different characters, it's play acting. Hypocrisy is the sin of pretending to be someone you are not, pretending to be better than you are. Anything striking home yet? Next comes envy. William Barclay, one of my favorite commentators, describes envy as the last sin to die. The last sin to die. Envy is longing to have something else, something that someone else has instead of them. Six of the Ten Commandments are directed toward our fellow human beings, and only one of those commandments, which starts with honor your father and mother, only one of them is an internal commandment, is one that you cannot see. It's you shall not covet. When you resent or despise another because they have what you want, that is envy. And Peter says, strip it off. And then finally comes slander. The word literally in the Greek is evil speaking. Evil speaking. It is disparaging gossip that is intended to raise yourself up as you tear someone else down. Every time you gossip about a sister behind her back, you are guilty of the filthy sin of evil speaking. Anyone gossiped? Lately? Do you want to learn to love each other with sincere hearts, Peter says, then start by stripping off these filthy behaviors toward one another. And I wonder which one of these malicious acts pricks your conscience. Which one, when you hear it, causes you to wince a little bit? Because I bet one of them does. I bet one of them strikes close to home. Is it deceit? Is it trickery for your own personal gain? Is it hypocrisy, pretending to be a better Christian than you really are? Is it envy, resenting others for having more than you have and wanting what they have? Is it slander? Is it evil speaking about a, a brother and sister to tear them down in order to build yourself up? Peter says, if you want to be a witness for Christ to the unbelieving world, you might start by stripping away these filthy, unloving behaviors and attitudes towards the people you claim to be members of your church family. I cannot remember a time in my life 
when the church needed more to hear this admonition than now. One of the wickedest aspects of COVID is the way it has turned Christians against each other. It has turned the church in on itself. Instead of presenting a united witness of love and faith and service and forbearance to the world, the church has increasingly displayed rancorous division over these last two years. We are divided along political lines. We are divided along mask lines. We are divided along vaccine lines. We are divided along news channel lines. We speak maliciously and slanderously and deceitfully and hypocritically of and to each other. And it only disgusts the unbelieving world around us. One commentator put it this way, if the unbelieving world looks at the church and sees malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, it has every right to wonder if we are really Christians. And worse, to reject Christ, to dismiss Jesus and the church. If ever there was a time when the people of Christ need to pull together to say, I don't necessarily agree with you, but you are my brother. You are my sister. I love you and I will defend you and I will speak well of you. This is that time. And the problem is, it's hard. The problem is, our tendency is to factionalize. It is to congregate around like-minded people and disparage those who are not in our clique. So how do we do this? Forget for the moment the sweet mutual Philadelphia love that we all long to experience. Just set that aside. How do we even take that first step of agape love, of obedience love? Peter says we must be born again. There I go again. Captain Obvious. How many times have we heard and used the phrase born again? But once more, these are Peter's words. He says, love one another deeply from the heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So here's one more churchy phrase, born again. But when Peter uses it, he's just quoting Jesus. He's quoting Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, that famous conversation in the middle of the night in John chapter 3. This, this doctrine of being born again, of, it's called regeneration, and it is ridiculous on its face. Nicodemus thought so. He said, how shall I enter again into my mother's womb? When we are grown, when we are old, and that's most of us, we cannot pretend to be young. It is pathetic to watch us try. I look in the mirror and I, I now see several chins from which to choose. <laughs> and an assortment of wrinkles and thinner hair and a paunchy belly. And a little nip and tuck and a little Botox and a little lipo would certainly be an improvement, but it is only pretense. I'm a grown man with grown man issues. 
When I look at the physical perfection of my granddaughter, it only reminds me of what I've lost and I will never regain this side of glory. And yet Jesus, and here Peter, says, be born again. Start over, fresh. How? By allowing the Word of God. And in this case, the Word of God is not talking about the Bible. This, in this case, it's talking about the gospel, about Jesus, about, by allowing Jesus to dwell in you. When we surrender to Christ, when we invite Him fully into our lives, unbelievably, we start over again. We are born again. We are regenerated that word, that living word living in within us, that imperishable and eternal spirit of Christ living within us is the force that gives us the courage and the desire to strip away all of the filthy things we wear, to live more righteously, to love our brothers and sisters with sincerity, even and especially those who irritate us. And he summarizes it all in his last verse for the text today, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, like Newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into salvation. Grow up into, there's sanctification. Grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I want to show you a picture of my granddaughter. I can't do it enough. This is Cece holding onto her bottle for dear life. And that is what he is talking about here. That is what it looks like for infants to long for pure milk. This is what she needs to grow up. And it is a picture of what we must do if we want to grow up into this great gift of salvation. We must fill ourselves up with Jesus. We must be filled with His Holy Spirit. This is how we grow into the precious salvation that has been given us. Because Jesus loved us when we were unlovely, because He lives inside of us and regenerates us and makes us new, it is He who empowers us to do the hardest thing in the world, and that is to love those who are really unlovely. <clears throat> but then comes a very terrifying word. Did you see it? It's a two-letter word. If. He says, if indeed... You have tasted that the Lord is good. That is a horrible word. That is a daunting word. In my life group, there's a man who recently was feeling kind of lousy, and so he asked his wife to fix him some of his favorite comfort food, a butter-covered grilled cheese sandwich. And he couldn't wait, and he took one bite of it and almost spat it out, and he said, what did you do to this? It tastes like cardboard. And then he realized it wasn't the sandwich. It was him. He had lost his taste. COVID had stolen his sense of taste. And it made him miserable. I think this little throwaway line at the end of this passage is the heart of the gospel. Right here. We aren't saved because we say, I think I'll be better than... I think it'd be better if I was better. I, I'm going to follow more rules in order to impress God or impress other people. We are saved because we've had a taste of the goodness of Jesus, and we can't get enough. We've tasted of His forgiveness, and we want to be forgiving. We've tasted of His generosity, and we want to be generous. 
We've tasted of his joy, and we want to be more joyful. We've tasted of his peace, and we want to be more peaceful. We've had enough of the cardboard blandness of this life. We've been saved from this life, set apart from this life to love and live in a different way. And every new morsel tastes so good that we can't get enough. We want more. This was a hard sermon for me to write because I have someone in my life, someone who's very close to me. And two weeks ago, we had the, the worst con- conversation we've ever had. And I heard some of the harshest criticism I've ever heard from her. It's not my wife, by the way. (laughs) And my first response, honestly, was anger and denial and rejection. Actually, screw this was my first honest response. But this is a sister in the Lord whom I'm called to love. And as hard as it might seem... It is possible for me to grow in this part of my salvation if I have indeed tasted and found that the Lord is good. And I have. And so I must. I have work that I must do. And the work has already begun. How about you? How about you? Who in your life do you need to love. Love one another from the heart, Peter says. Lord, these are easy words to say and easy words to live out when they are lovely people. But you have brought together the most incredible and diverse and unlikely, motley crew in this building today. We would likely never be together for another reason, all of us. We come from different social backgrounds. We come from different educational backgrounds, different political persuasions. Some of us are wealthy. Some of us are not so wealthy. We might never have another reason to be together. And yet, because we all love your son, you have made us brothers and sisters. And the way that we love each other, you have said, Lord Jesus, will be the single most important and compelling witness to our world. So God, in a time when Christians are turning on each other, when churches are shutting down or splitting, in a time when we are divided over politics and divided over race and divided over masks and social distancing and all of the rest, in a time when Satan must just be clapping with glee at how we have taken after each other. We beg your Holy Spirit to fill us anew. We beg your Holy Spirit to grow us up in this salvation. We beg your Holy Spirit to restore to us the taste of the goodness of the Lord, the reminder of what it means to be saved by you and saved for something greater than ourselves. Convict us, Lord, of those moments this week when we have been rancorous, divisive, hypocritical, envious, slanderous, deceitful. Convict us of that. Bring it to our mind that we might repent of it and be born again. 
need to be born again by your spirit even now. So we ask you to do what we cannot do, Holy Spirit. Fill us, change us, renew us, regenerate us, restore us, revive us again. And may the world look through these doors, peek through the windows, and say, look how they love each other. I wonder what that could be all about. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. Because you have loved us. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 1030 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.